only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. You can follow along if you're visiting with us in the Blue Pew Bible in front of you on page 945. Listen now to the word of God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and, make his, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of God. And now the relatively feminine voice of your, of your minister. <laughs> I just love that voice, booming voice there. You know, it's me. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Father, we... We come to this passage that speaks of sovereignty in ways that just it just blisters us. It it just it really bludgeons our human sensibilities. All that we want to think about ourselves, all that we want to think about our own power. And Lord, we're faced with this this sheer cliff of the absolute sovereignty of God. And yet, this is our hope. Because if it were not for this absolute sovereignty to show mercy wherever you want to show mercy, in spite of whatever you find in the hearts of those that you will show mercy to, we would have no hope whatsoever. You were looking for anything in us as a reason to show mercy. We would have no hope whatsoever. But it doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon you. It depends upon this sovereign God who lavishly 
pours out His mercy in places that no one could imagine. And really, for each one of us, the story is the same. Who could imagine? Who could imagine that any one of us would receive the mercy of God? And yet, so many have. Oh, Lord, may your grace humble us. May it cause us to exalt you, to live for your glory, to fix our hope only upon you and never in ourselves. For Jesus' sake, amen. I I want to give a little bit of background for Romans 9 again because we're all pretty distant from the flow of thought in Romans and some of you haven't heard much of it at all, but I think it's important as we come to this passage to see what Paul is about. This really is a continuation of, of chapter 3 when the question of God's righteousness or his right dealing with the Jews came up. Because at the beginning of this uh, book of Romans, Paul basically begins by, you might put it this way, of taking the Gentiles in, out to the uh, outhouse, okay? And talking about how the Gentiles deserve the wrath of God for all that they have been and done. And of course, the, the Jews are kind of like the little character Sidney uh, Sawyer we saw last night in the play, who's Mr. Goody, good, uh, Mr. Goody Good Shoes, you know, and he's all about jumping on Tom Sawyer, and he's so much better than Tom Sawyer and all this. And boy, Sidney's a great example of the Jews, you know. Yeah, you go in there and you just beat up on those Gentiles and just take them down because that's exactly the problem with these Gentiles. And if you could picture it, them standing outside kind of dancing, you know, and talking about the... And then suddenly the Gentiles are put out and this big arm comes out and just jerks them back in themselves into the outhouse. And there you have chapter 2, okay? And he shows in chapter 2 that... Just because you happen to be physical descendants of Abraham, just because you are culturally, religiously, outwardly uh, before this God and, and, and claim to confess this Yahweh, if your heart is not there, if your heart is not for Yahweh, if, you're, if you have not welcomed His mercy and trusted in Him, if you've not seen that you need a new heart that you're that desperate in your sin, then you're not even a Jew. That's his basic conclusion in in, uh, Romans chapter 2. He ends up at the end of that uh, chapter saying, uh, you're not a Jew if you're just one outwardly. That's not a Jew. He says, "And, and circumcision is just in the flesh. That doesn't make you a Jew. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. If you've been renewed. So right there, he's showing anybody who's not fundamentally helpless before God, undone before God, realizing I need forgiveness, I need renewal, I'm helpless apart from your mercy. If you're not standing there, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or not a Jew. You're lost. And it's kind of like the Jews. We've really enjoyed... Uh, the Groupons. 
How many do Groupons in here? Some of you, okay. A Groupon is just what it sounds like. It's not just a coupon. It's a Groupon, okay. <laughs> There's a group of people that get the coupon for, say, we went to Hidari's a few a week or so ago, uh, and we we paid twenty dollars for a forty dollar meal, and so you know you show up to Hidari's and. You get ready to pay, and instead of pulling out 40 bucks, you hand them a Groupon, right? Free. Well, it's a pretty good illustration of what the Jews thought they had. They had a Groupon, you know, and they're all part of it. We're all Jews. We all have this Groupon, and all we have to do is hand it to God and say, I know we don't trust in your mercy, really. I know we're not helpless and dependent and all that, but you got this little Groupon. We're your people. We're your people. Circumcision, notice, okay? Uh, we're circumcised, and we belong to you. So there's nothing you can really do because we're in. We're in. We've got this Groupon. And Paul is saying, of course, there are no Groupons. Certainly not a Groupon that, it, that is a reason that gets you out of the need for God's mercy. And, of course, that became all the more apparent when... God himself comes in the flesh to bear the sin of mankind, Jew and Gentile. Talk about a statement of the need of mercy. Talk about desperation. This is what God has to do to rescue you. He has to come into the flesh, live a perfect life on your behalf, die a a sacrifice for your sins, and be raised from the dead to bring you out of death into life because you are lost. Well, by and large, what, what was the Jewish response to that? We don't want that. We don't need that. That's not us. We're not, we're not in need of God's mercy. In fact, interestingly, Paul can say at the end of Romans chapter 9, they pursued a law that led, led to righteousness, but not by faith, but as if it were by works, if it were by our own accomplishment. So, Right there, though, interestingly, right there is, as Paul is talking about the, the Jewish people and the fact that it, it's, it's really like this. It's, it's, I asked Jerry Moore this morning, uh, what is that little tool they use, you know, to separate pills out? And he said, they, it's a spatula, you know, okay? Or the little crummer that they use uh, if in a restaurant to, I love, I always love that. It got all these crumbs and he comes up and just all clean, you know, after that. I just love the tablecloth after the crummer gets through. Um, but here's God with his little crummer or spatula. And here's the Jews. They've got their group on. Here are the, uh, the, the Gentiles over here. And God in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, and then he goes on to say in chapter 3, are Jews any better off? No, Jews and, and Greeks are all under sin. And it's as though he takes his little spatula and moves all those pills over here and says, you all are under sin. And Jew or Gentile, the only hope you have is if you trust in God's mercy that is in Christ. And then, Jew or Gentile, you become a part of the new people of God. But the question arises right there in chapter 3. Well, then, what good did it be? was it to be a Jew? Did circumcision mean anything? Does this mean if so many Jews have rejected Christ that God is not faithful to his people? The huge question raised in chapter 3. Is God faithful? Is He true? Is He righteous? Those questions in regard to God's people. But God doesn't, I mean, Paul doesn't really 
fully deal with it until chapter 9. But it's interesting that right when the issue comes up of the Jews are under sin as well, then the question arises, well, I thought God said, I'm their God and I will be their God forever and it's an eternal covenant. And, and now it seems like you're just lumping it with all the Gentiles. Well, it was God really faithful to the Jews? And if most of the Jews do not believe, can you really say God was faithful to his people? Those are the questions raised back in chapter 3. And certainly any Jew in this this kind of sermon that Paul is giving us here, this kind of uh, laying out of the gospel is what he would give in the synagogues. So you can imagine the Jews hearing this kind of thing and wondering, well, what does this mean for us? What does it mean about God's faithfulness? It's kind of like a kid, uh, your daddy's come back from a trip visiting uh, your grandmother and they did a lot of stuff to get your mother and grandmother in a nursing home and all this kind of thing. And he's, he comes in to tell you all about it and says, uh, well, first of all, just want to mention that I'm going to quadruple your allowance next week. But, but before that, let me tell you what happened to your grandmother. So, so, so he talks about the grandmother and what you're thinking about is what? Quadruple my allowance. And so he talks about this, and y'all are sitting down to dinner, and, and things are going, and it doesn't appear that your dad's going to say anything, and you're like, Dad, what about that little Q word <laughs> that I heard earlier? And your dad's playing with you, you know, he says, what, quill? Was it quilt, quotient, quadrangle, qualify? I don't remember. You know, quadruple. Oh, yeah, okay, we're going to quadruple. Well, that's kind of what this is like, that you and I may not, we may forget chapter 3 as we get all to, to all the glories of Romans 3 through 8 and God's glorious work that he's done. But I am guarantee you the Jews are sitting there thinking, wait a minute, you raised something and you hadn't dealt with it yet. And Paul knows he hasn't dealt with it yet. So he gets to chapter 9 and he says, okay, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? And you see the same concern as he talks about, was God true? Was God faithful? Was God righteous in chapter 3? And notice in chapter 9, verse 6, it's not as though what? The word of God has failed. So God is, it's as though if God's promise and God's purpose was to do good to his people, how do you explain this situation of the Jews? Well, there's some hints, of course, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, that all are not real Jews. It's those who have a new heart that are true Jews, which also indicates it's those who have been humbled and in their sin have trusted in God's mercy and helplessly rested in Him. That's a true Jew, okay? So that's why immediately then in verses 6 through 7, he says this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Sounds like Roman 2, right? Uh, that not every Jew outwardly is a Jew. It's those who are inwardly circumcised. So not all who are Israel belong to Israel. And he goes back to the very root of the uh, Israelite uh, the, the, uh, of their people by going to Abraham himself. All the way back to Ishmael. All the way back to the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. All the way back there, because as he calls them, he says, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. And you see that he's, he's showing right from the beginning 
God did not save everybody who was physically a part of Abraham. And with Ishmael, some of you may not be familiar with the story, but with Ishmael, uh, Sarah, after they can't have children, they know they're supposed to have a children God, child, God's going to give them a child. She gives Abraham her maid, Hagar, to have a baby by Hagar. Now, in our culture, that's not going to work. No. Your wife has a servant and she comes to you and says, I want you to give me a baby by her. No, you're right. You're like, you got to be kidding. That that doesn't work. But in that day, the servant was regarded as belonging to and even a part of her mistress, an extension of the mistress, so to speak. So that whatever was done with or for her was part of the mistress. So this was really going to be Sarah's child. But you see what God says or how Paul treats it. He says, it's a child of the flesh versus a child of the promise. And here again, you get a division in Israel. He's already talked about one who has a new heart and one who doesn't. One who is therefore helpless and knows that I'm in need of, of deep, complete transformation by God's grace. That distinguishes true Israel. And now he's saying... It's those who are of the promise, not of the flesh. In other words, it's those who, with Abraham and Sarah, have the kind of faith that enables a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old to bear a child. Absolute helplessness. Not trying to see what we can do in terms of our own strength and our own resources, helping save myself and and doing it by myself, independent of God's grace. Just a child of the flesh, you see, it's called. What I can do in my own resources, what I can accomplish to try to fulfill God's purposes or even be accepted by God. No, that's not what constitutes a person. Simply to be a, a physical part of, of Israel and you're trying to do everything in your own strength and by your own standards so that your own works are set forth. Well, see, God, what Paul's really saying is, look, Ishmael, you may think Ishmael is something else, but Ishmael now looks like you, O Jews. You're Ishmael. Because you're not resting in helplessly in the power of God to rescue you. Because, you see, Jesus' resurrection says something very similar to the barrenness of, of Sarah. That it takes God bringing about a resurrection through His own Son to raise you from the dead. It's miraculous that you could have a new spiritual life. You can't just produce that. You can't just decide, when I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be a lover of God. I'm going to be a lover of people. I'm going to live for God's praise. It's a miracle if that happens. And it's a miracle produced through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what distinguishes true Israel is not just being born of the flesh and living according to the flesh, but it's this kind of abandonment to the power of God. Have you ever seen, uh, I, I know you have, abandoned gas stations? I've, I've seen one that I, I see quite a bit because it's where we go to visit Kay's parents and 
our own son and daughter-in-law. But uh, it's a, it, it has an old pure sign. You know, you kids don't even know that there was a pure, but that was a gas station. So here's a pure sign, and here is a, a little bitty building with windows broken out. There's nobody been there forever. The pumps are not even there. Just pieces of, you can see where the pumps used to be, and grass grown up everywhere. Now, you're not going to get any gas there. You can pull in, wait for the attendant. You can go in, look for a Coke, look for a NABs. You know what NABs are in the South, those peanut butter crackers made by Nabisco. I learned from Kay those are NABs. Um, but you're not going to find any of that, you, you, nothing at all. That pure station is dead. And what... God is communicating here is that until you realize that you are dead and you enter into that kind of helpless faith in the mercy of God, then you're not a part of Israel. You're Ishmael and you're in the flesh. True Israel is marked by its helpless dependence on God. And then it gets even even more. He, He just keeps moving more and more to the majesty of God's sovereign mercy and God's sovereignty in how he shows mercy. Obviously, with, uh, with Isaac, there's the great power of God that brings about that which couldn't happen outside of him. Purely his power, purely his mercy. This distinguishes this true people of God in Israel, those who, like Abraham and, and Sarah, rest in the power of God. And God finds us all the same way as dead, pure gas stations. The best of us, the most successful of us, morally and spiritually, that's what we look like. Because as Paul says earlier in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he moves toward even... a a greater sign of the mercy of God. When he goes to the next generation, this Isaac is, he's grown now, and Isaac is, uh, he and Rebekah have uh, twins, conceived children by one man, Rebekah in verse 10. And here's the statement, though they were not yet born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. God says, I'm going to love the younger and choose him and draw him to myself. And I'm going to be in relationship to him, not the older. Now that's kind of shocking to us. That he would say this, and particularly you notice, he says, though they, verse 11, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. Why? And here's where Paul, more and more, in, in showing how God is righteous and how he's dealt with Israel, Showing that it's not all of Israel, it's not just physical Israel, but God has a purpose within Israel to draw people to himself. And it started right at the beginning of Israel with Abram and Isaac. And he's stressing it had nothing to do with how good or bad anybody was. And even with Jacob and Esau, particularly it wasn't because God moved ahead, surveyed the whole of Jacob's life and thought, Man, I like Jacob. I I think I want Jacob. It's not like when we get off uh, an interstate and we're looking around at different gas stations. 
Which one do I pick? If I get off at night and here's one that's dark and seedy looking and it looks like I might get something in the back if I go in there. And over here is this brightly lit and they've got everything like a big Walmart in there and all these people are bustling around. I'm not going to go over here. No, I'm going in the bright, beautiful place. And right here in, in Genesis, I mean in Romans 9, Paul is stressing God had a purpose in Israel to draw certain ones to himself. And it's illustrated right there with Jacob and Esau. And it had nothing to do with Jacob. God wasn't getting off the interstate picking the brightest gas station. He's looking at two, two pure broken down stations. Both of them would refuse him. Both of them would say no. Both of them would harden their hearts against him continually. But he looks at them both and says, I'm going to take this one for myself. And then, verse 14, the natural response. Well, there's unrighteousness with God. This can't be right. It can't be right for God to do this kind of thing. And and now, we've moved from his... Showing how God is righteous in Israel and his promise to Israel is true because though he said, I will be a God to them, he didn't mean willy-nilly to every physical person in Israel. He meant, I will be a God to those people whom I set my love upon and draw to myself. And it will not be because of their goodness. That's where Paul comes to in verse 14, where people are saying, people who would measure God, who would measure his actions and say, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right for God to choose someone, to choose Jacob, even though he had done nothing good or bad. Do you know that the Jewish rewording of verse uh, verse 15, which is... uh, Exodus 33, 19. This verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. There's a Jewish targum or one of their writings that says, I will have mercy on those who deserve mercy. And I will show compassion on those who deserve compassion. And you know how a Jewish Jew would read that? Is i.e. those with the Groupon, right? Those with the Groupon. He's going to show mercy to us. He's going to let us in. He's going to let bygones be bygones with us. And what's so startling about this passage that Paul goes to, as we saw last week, and you see this flow of his, his thought talking to the Jews saying, you must have a new heart. You must recognize your helplessness. You must be not as Ishmael, not as, as the effort with Hagar to create something in your own strength, to present your own works and your own accomplishments, but you must helplessly depend upon God to do what you cannot do for yourself. And you must realize that it has nothing to do with your righteousness so that you you can't exempt yourself by saying, yeah, but I'm so bad, I'm so evil. That's not how His mercy operates. That's the good news. And Paul underscores it in verse 15 
because he says, okay, you think it's unrighteous that he would show love to one and not the other, not based on some goodness in them that this is a better gas station, so I'm picking it, but all the gas stations are the same and it doesn't matter about the gas stations. That's not why I pick. I pick because I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Because he says, this verse was spoken to Moses when Moses was concerned if after the golden calf incident, after the people of God had bowed down to worship the golden calf, his question was, are you going to continue with us, God? Are you going to be our God? Are you committed to us? And in doing so, he was crying out, oh, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Give me hope that you will be with these people who've abandoned you. These people, after God had done all of this to bring them out of Egypt, all of these plagues, parting the Red Sea, cloud by day, fire by night, manna, water from a rock. It's like a bunch of Navy SEALs going in and rescuing these people from, at the cost of their lives, from being captured behind enemy lines. And they pull them out and they're in the helicopter and suddenly these people strap on parachutes and they go right back down to where they were. Now, what would you do if you were one of those Navy SEALs? You'd say, dude, <laughs> you've made your bed, you lie in it. Because we spent ourselves to rescue you, and then you just go right back into it. We're not coming back down for you. And that's what was happening with God. He had rescued them. They had immediately turned away from him, jumped back out of the helicopter, so to speak, worshiping this golden calf. And, and Moses is saying, oh, Lord, declare your glory. Who are you? Would you? Could you go with us? And then this marvelous statement of God, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, what he's saying to Moses, and Moses got it, as the passage shows, is that I will even have compassion on these undeserving rebels who have worshipped a golden calf. Because my compassion does not depend on the goodness of people. And then he just underscores that with Pharaoh. Because this, this phrase where he says, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The very reason he then goes to Pharaoh and says, for this, reason, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I might proclaim my name, is that God always acts for the glory of his name. And so here Moses asks for his glory and God says, I'll declare you my name. Here is my name. Here is my glory. Here is who I am. Here I am in my majesty. I have mercy on whomever I wish. That's the thing God wants to announce. And in the very same breath, he goes to this uh, situation with Pharaoh where Pharaoh was hardened again and again and again. And hardening doesn't mean that God is making Pharaoh sin. Pharaoh himself chose to do wrong things over and over and over again. He continued in his own evil. It wasn't as though Pharaoh's going good and he wants to do the right thing, but God says, no, nah, I'm going to infuse a little evil in there. But it's God allowing someone to just continue their own way. And that is a hardening process 
when God takes his hands off, he knows exactly what's going to happen. It's as sure as if he was making it happen. And that's why it can be said that he hardens his heart because he allows Pharaoh to continue to make decision after decision, to continue to sin, to continue to harden against him. But his point is, whether you're dealing with Esau or Jacob, you're dealing with the people of God or Pharaoh, it doesn't depend on... why all of us, Jew and Gentile, must say, I must have a new heart. I have no capacity to follow you. I have no capacity to have faith. I have no capacity to, to be all that I need to be before you, God. Oh, give me a new heart. Circumcise my heart. Lord, I'm like, I, I'm like Abraham and Sarah. I'm helpless. I'm bound by sin. I'm in the guilt of sin. Raise me up even as you gave them a child by that power. And oh Lord, I recognize that I'm no better than Esau. I'm no better than Pharaoh. Lord, I come to you with all of my sin and I appeal to the God who has mercy on whom he has mercy. Is is, is that the God that you would appeal to? the God of this mercy. We we tend to think about this as removing dignity from us. And that is one of the chief reasons that people reject the gospel. Because God comes to us and says, you are so broken and sinful, my son had to die for your sin. And I'm not going to have you come to me because I see something good in you, something better than someone else. He gives nobody a Groupon (laughs) that gets them out of the need for mercy. But your dignity, dear friend, is that you're made in the image of God. And really, here's a picture if you want to try to paint it in terms of the gas station. What if you came upon a gas station And it is abandoned and it is broken down, but you think, that looked like there were 64 pumps here. And look how big that building was. And there's a whole new area over here. This must have housed thousands of people. This must have been glorious in its day. And that's kind of like us. Kings and queens made for the glory of God, made to rule the earth made to reflect God and to represent Him in the, in the world, to be the picture of God's glory in creation. And when we fell, what a sad thing. Neytiri's statement in Avatar, this is sad, sad only. <laughs> I just love that statement about us, to see us, glorious beings made in the image of God, now we're focused on ourselves. We're broken and we're like this majestic thing that is now broken down. It's sad and sad only. But His mercy, we have read, we have sung. Psalm 103 says, It's as high as the heavens, His loving kindness. In Psalm 103 it says, It's from everlasting to everlasting. In Lamentations 3, it says, His loving kindness never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. This is the mercy of God that is offered to each one of you. 
We had a quite a culture. I'll close with this. I know it's it's late. We've we've gone past. We had quite a cultural experience on the night of Anna Kate's, our daughter's rehearsal dinner. Uh, we had the rehearsal, and we go out, you know, to this uh, side door, this direction. And before, as I was walking down the hall, I hear the rumbling. Because Bryson, you know, is from Jacksboro, Texas. He's got a huge truck. And every one of his friends had huge diesel trucks. Okay? They're like the one this friend had years ago when he was going to drive up in this uh, at a rodeo. And Kay was going to meet him there. And uh, it was a friend of the family's and all. And um, she said, well, how will I know you? He said, I'll be in a white dually. She said, what's a dually? And he said, it's a truck with hips, you know, extra wheels. So Kay loved to come home and say, you married a white dually. <laughs> She'd had a new name for herself, you know, okay? <clears throat> but here are all these dualies, this, this rumbling of trucks. And I mean, when they pulled out, you know, to go to the nice restaurant that the, our in-laws were paying for, you know. I want you to think of the rumbling of diesel engines out there. And, I'm, and I'd say, hey, that's the rumble of the mercy of God. And you're like, really? Yeah, check it out. And you go out there, and it's kind of like that scene at the end of Field, and Dreams, uh, Field of Dreams, whatever you think about that, where there's this line of lights that just go on forever. And you go out there, and it's not just one big diesel truck, I mean an 18-wheeler, but you look as far as you can, and the lights never end. Say, that's the mercy of God. All of that rumbling, powerful God is devoted and his mercies are yours. And guess what? Nothing holds him back. Nothing holds him back. Your sin doesn't hold him back. Your failure doesn't hold him back. Your brokenness, brokenness doesn't hold him back. Why? Because he, the all-powerful, sovereign God, sovereign God says, this is my glory. I give mercy wherever I want to. That's your hope. That's your hope. So he gives mercy wherever he wants to. And he will give it to you. Will you refuse it? Will you turn away? All right. Next week, very important passage, isn't it? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We'll talk about that next week. If you figure out what it means, let me know. No, I'm just kidding. Let us pray. Oh, Father... We pray that you would bless this word to our understanding. That as we track the very history of the people of God, Israel itself, and we see what distinguishes your people from just the name, from just the physical presence, from just going through the motions, from just going through rituals, from just having certain signs attached to your body or, or certain things you do as performances, Lord, that... It's helpless dependence. It's a heart renewal. It's believing in a God who raises from the dead. It's believing in a God who has mercy wherever He wishes. Oh, Lord, we are no different than Esau or Ishmael or Pharaoh. It is not because you come and see that we're a bright, beautiful gas station and therefore you have mercy. But that is our hope because we, by your grace come to know how deep the depravity of our heart is, how deep our sin runs, how deep 
our commitment to self runs. And yet you say, I will have mercy even on you, even on you, because it doesn't depend on you, but my mercy. Oh, may your people, may anyone here, Lord, trust in your great mercy. For Jesus' sake we pray. Pleasing is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears